five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. In today's episode, I am bringing you a kidney warrior story. Now there's always something you can learn from someone's story, something that can bring inspiration and hope. My guest today from Cleveland, Ohio, USA is sociology professor and author Monica Starks. Monica was diagnosed with end-stage renal failure at the age of 27, returned to dialysis after the failure of her kidney transplant. Monica is passionate about raising awareness of kidney disease and is determined to live life to the full. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Monica? I am doing quite well. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm very excited and looking forward to interviewing you today. As everyone knows, I always love doing Kidney Warrior interviews because, as I always say, there's so much we can learn from people's lived experience. So, yes, I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. So, my first question is, how did your kidney warrior journey begin and how were you diagnosed? So I believe my journey began when I was about seven or eight years old and I had um, bouts of vomiting periodically. It's very sporadic. Oftentimes when we were um, on going out as a family for dinner and my family members thought that I was doing it on purpose, but I definitely was not. And then it stopped. No one thought to investigate it. Obviously, I didn't think because I was a child, but none of the adults thought maybe we should investigate this to see what's going on, probably because they really thought I was doing this to myself and life just went on. Again, at about 17, I think, maybe 16 or 17, somewhere around um, sophomore or junior year of high school, it started happening again. I just started having these bouts of vomiting. And it went away. What I know today is that those were probably signs of something not going right or maybe toxins not being removed from my body. It went away and I was old enough to maybe investigate it with the doctor, but I didn't think that I should either. Maybe about 25, I think, is when it really hit and didn't stop. So about 25, I started having uh, swelling. I think the very first time was I just had swelling in my feet. So bad. I was in college. So bad that I couldn't stand up. I couldn't stand to stand on my feet. They were very swollen. And I was wheelchaired to a car. And then I was driven to my doctor's office. They couldn't figure out what caused it. Gave me Benadryl because they thought maybe it was an allergy. It sent me home. Wow. And it, it went away. 
about this time is when I started feeling a lot of uh, tiredness. I was lethargic, extremely lethargic. I had a child. He was young and I had him involved in everything that I could have him involved in. And my doctor knew that. And when I complained of being tired, the doctor said, well, you're a very busy woman and you have your son involved in a lot of things. So that's probably why you're tired. And he didn't think a second time. I remember saying, I have friends my age who do about the same amount of things that I do. And they are never complaining of feeling as tired as I am. And this is not a normal tiredness. Like I am so tired. And he just kind of chalked it up as I have a busy life. And it just never stopped. It was ongoing. I was asking every doctor to, you know, check me out, see what's going on. Something's wrong with me. I didn't know what it was, but something was wrong with me. A lot of things about my daily life were starting to be different. The swelling happened again in my mouth. My lips were swollen so bad. It was kind of like the elephant man. I remember my grandmother saying, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And my grandmother wasn't a very mobile person at this time in her life. And she said, I'll go with you to the emergency room. So I had a feeling something is really bad that she's going to try her best to get out of the house and go with me. And again, in the emergency room, they said, you're allergic to something. Gave me Benadryl. We don't know exactly what it is. So how do I make sure that I don't have that thing again? I don't do that thing again. I don't eat that thing again. They said, well, just try to backtrack. What did you eat today? Stay away from anything similar to what you ate today. And that was about all the information that I got. And went home again. The swelling went down from my lips. The Benadryl probably helped that. It was temporary. And I just continued living my life. I think at 27 is when I had the third bout of swelling. And this time it was in my thighs. And I saw a new doctor at this time. He says, okay, something's wrong with your immune system. So we're going to do an AIDS test because you probably have AIDS. And I'm thinking, wow. Yeah. Wow (laughs) is right. (laughs) I'm 27 years old. I have a small child. (laughs) I'm going through a divorce, mind you. And all I could think of was this, you know what? He's he's giving me AIDS and we're getting a divorce, right? Because my mind automatically went to the person that I was divorcing because I knew I hadn't done anything. And I'm listening to the doctor. And you can only imagine over the weekend waiting for these results to come back, the thoughts, the tears, like what is going on? Well, the results came back that I did not have HIV or or AIDS, whichever one that he tested for, but I didn't have either of those. So now it's, but what do I have? (laughs) The same question that I've been asking everybody. And he goes, I don't know. Something's wrong with your immune system. And probably a few months later, I was at work and my abdomen was bothering me terribly. I was like, I need to be um, driven to the emergency room. I need an ambulance to come and take me to the emergency room like right away. I am in so much pain. I was crying at everything at work. 
So I was taken to the emergency room and there they did a urine test. And finally, there was an answer. We found protein in your urine and we think you have chronic kidney disease. Well, at that time, they didn't call it that. At that time, they just said, we think you have something called nephrotic syndrome. And I can say it quite well today, but at that time, I couldn't even pronounce it. Goodness gracious, what is this? Is it something that kills people? What, you know, I'm like totally lost, but I do have an answer. Call my grandmother from the emergency room because obviously I needed a ride into somebody to pick me up since I had gotten there with the ambulance. And I tell her what they said I have. And she says, oh, I've heard of that before. It was what was on her aunt's death certificate. So that was great news to hear. Whoa. <laughs> I'm still in the emergency room. I just got oh, this no. diagnosis. And you tell me someone that you know and your family has died from this. Obviously, this person's in my family too, right? I just never met this person. And I'm like, great, great. So the journey began. (laughs) It was a time to try to investigate and see nephrologists and find out more about this disease. I can't even say properly at that time, but that's how it started. And that's when it began full force. And from that day, which was um, in 1999, August of 1999 till today, I now know that I am a chronic kidney disease patient. Wow, that is quite, (laughs) that is a rough entry into your kidney (laughs) disease journey. I mean, good grief. What a roller coaster. Wow. You really are a warrior. You really have come (laughs) through so much. And that was just the beginning more over the rest of your journey. So you've finally had the answer to the question that has been plaguing you on and off for so many years. So now that you had that diagnosis, what happened next? What difference did it make to your life? Well, to add insult to injury, I did mention that I was going through a divorce. I found out maybe a week and a half to two weeks after the diagnosis that I was pregnant. Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, it just gets better and better. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm getting a divorce. I have some illness I've never heard of before. And now I'm pregnant by a man who I'm trying to disconnect from. And what does this all mean? As far as a pregnancy and this disease, like I don't even know enough about this disease yet. So I was told by the OB doctor that women who have chronic kidney disease don't usually get pregnant. So it's amazing that you are pregnant, but the baby's probably not going to live. So he was very optimistic, right? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Like, yeah, you know, I don't want to hear that. Even though I'm getting a divorce, I also, you know, this is what's happening. I want to have my child. And so I believe that he did not try to do anything to make the baby live either because he had it set in his mind that this is just what should happen to a woman in kidney failure. 
And so he was right. The baby was stillborn. I was about six months pregnant. The baby's heart stopped beating. And he was not as, um, the doctor was just very matter of fact about it. I told you that this would happen. And it happened. And it was, yeah. And it was due to the blood pressure increase. I'd never had any problems with blood pressure until I was diagnosed with kidney disease. And what you probably already know, and maybe some of our listeners may know, is that the kidney regulates your blood pressure. But when the kidney's not working, it can't do that job anymore. So you go into uh, hypertension. So the blood pressure was really high and it caused problems with the pregnancy. And the doctor at that time seemed to be unwilling to adjust the blood pressure medicine and fight the blood pressure to keep the child alive. I didn't know that at the time. Oh and I didn't God. realize that that was an option at the time. I know, you know, it's hindsight. I know that now. Uh, so yeah, the baby did die and I did get a divorce and I felt lost. I felt lost. I was learning about the disease. And at that time, the internet was not what it is today. And it was not the place to go to try to find out about an illness. It was not. So I'm looking on the internet, trying to find out what I could and everything seemed like gloom. So it was a very tough time in my life. And the divorce happened in May. This was in 2000. The divorce happened in May. The baby died February 1st. And October, same year, I met my current husband. Things went really quickly from going from a divorce to now meeting somebody that seemed to be very supportive and understood what I might be going through because I wasn't on dialysis or anything at that time. And my meeting him helped make things a whole lot better for me because now I had somebody to help me go through whatever was to come. And neither one of us knew what was to come, but it did help. It was a relief. It's a, it's a huge relief to have some kind of support when you're going through things like this. It wasn't just one thing. There were a lot of things that I was going through. So it was helpful to have some support. And so mine, um, he was just a friend at that time. He and I, we battled it. And I also hate to forget to mention that my ex-husband's sister was extremely helpful. She was there with me through everything in the very beginning. And then when I met my current husband, she stayed. And so it was like the three of us. I had help. I was a warrior with little warriors along with me. And, you know, either one of them or both of them would accompany me to my doctor's appointments and listen for me. So we had three sets of ears because sometimes you don't hear everything that the doctor is saying when you're getting heavy bits of information. Yes. You get a heavy bits of information and it's kind of like... <laughs> Okay, you just said something that I'm now drowning. I'm, I'm drowning everything else that you're saying out because that one thing just kind of hit me hard. And then I can get back home and have other people to say, okay, what well, the doctor also said this and also said that. So things became a little bit easier with the disease at that point. And 2001, I was told that I probably should get on dialysis, even though I did have a living a donor who was willing to give me a transplant. We had an appointment set up for June, but I was in a hospital for what something. I, I wasn't feeling good. And I went to the emergency room and they said, hey, we think you probably need to start dialysis. Even though you have a scheduled transplant for June, this will help you be healthier going into your transplant. 
So they started me on dialysis. They also gave me a blood transfusion. Again, this will help you be healthier. Your hemoglobins are kind of low. And so I said yes to everything because I wanted to be, um, I didn't want to be non-compliant. And I think that you guys know more than I do about what I should do. So, and nobody's telling me that there's any risk for doing these things. So, okay. Yes. If that's what you think I should do. Okay. (laughs) I find out in June when we're scheduled for our transplant that I should not have gotten that blood transfusion. (laughs) I should not have gotten that blood transfusion because we go in for our pre-surgery testing on Thursday, Friday, while I'm in dialysis, I get a phone call and says, uh, we can't do your surgery on Tuesday. Why not? Well, because you and your donor do not match. You no longer match. (laughs) Oh my goodness. How is that possible? We've been going through this for eight or nine months. We've been going through, you know, everything to get ready for this. How do we not match all of a sudden? Well, there's a lot of things that could have happened. Did you happen to have a blood transfusion? Yeah, I did. Well, there you have it. Uh, it changed the antigens in your blood. Oh, my God. You got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. No, ma'am, we can't do your surgery. And at that time, there was something they were considering that might help you fix this whole antigen change in your blood, but it was not approved by the American government at that time. So it was thousands and thousands of dollars, like $30,000 or something like that, money that I did not have, money that my family did not have. And it hadn't been approved yet, so the medical insurance wouldn't cover it. But this was something they thought might fix that. But I couldn't participate in it because I couldn't afford it. And so I had to just tell myself, this is what you are going to have to deal with, dialysis. Even though I was excited about getting a transplant and I didn't want to actually do dialysis. I just wanted to go from diagnosis to transplant. But I listened to them thinking that this would be good for me from February to June. And in June, I would get the transplant and things would be normal. But I called it my new normal (laughs) because now I have to accept the fact that this is going to be it. The dialysis thing, this is going to be it for a while because I was reluctant to now deal with asking anybody else to be a donor. It was what I think today. It was like a a form of depression. And I was just like, forget the whole transplant thing. I'm just going to deal with the dialysis and, and be fine with it. And I allowed them to take transplant. Um, labs from me every month. And if a cadaver became available, then fine. But I wasn't going to ask anybody else because I was just, you know, I guess I was in my feelings. And um, understandably. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my husband and I, well, my boyfriend and I got married and here we go again. (laughs) I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh my goodness. And I knew I was pregnant because I had been pregnant twice before, right? With my son that I had from my previous marriage and the baby that died. But this doctor, this new nephrologist that I'm seeing now, he says, it's not possible for you to be pregnant. Kidney patients can't get pregnant. 
I mean, dialysis patients can't get pregnant. And I think, I think we had that conversation before. (laughs) And so I said, but I feel pregnant and I've been pregnant before and I feel pregnant. He wouldn't even give me a pregnancy test. What? Would not even give me a pregnancy test. He said, I think something's wrong with your stomach. If you're having pains in your stomach and you're vomiting. So you need to go see your primary care physician. So I go see my primary care physician, who's a woman. And before I even walked in to see her, I went to take the urine test. And then we saw each other. And she said, why are you here? I said, well, I'm having some problems with my stomach. She says, well, we know why that's happening. Anything else wrong? And I said, oh, you do? She said, yeah, you're pregnant. And I cried. She said, why are you crying? Did you not want to be pregnant? I said, well, no, but I was told that it's not possible. Even when I thought I was and I knew that I was, the doctor had convinced me that I wasn't. And so I'm crying probably because I'm pregnant and pregnant people get emotional sometimes. And because I'm just so tired of people telling me things that aren't necessarily true and and brushing me off and not listening to me, not listening to me. And I was four months pregnant. Wow. So I go back to the doctor, the the nephrologist, and he says, well, he didn't want to accept the fact that he was wrong. Obviously, he didn't want to accept that. He says, you should abort. What? (laughs) (laughs) Look at the story. It's just like, it should definitely be like a film or something. It should be a movie. My goodness. (laughs) Yeah, he tells me that I should abort. So my husband says, well, what should we do? I said, we're going to have a baby. That's what we're going to do. And I didn't know what to do next. but. I believe in God and I believe in the power of prayer. And I began praying. I don't know what to do next, but I am not having an abortion for this child. Um, And especially if I'm not supposed to be pregnant and I'm pregnant, I think that I'm pregnant for a reason and I'm not going to do that. And he said, well, your baby could have Down syndrome. Your baby's going to probably be born early, be premature, blah, 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 blah. And I would not receive those things that he was saying. And I got a phone call from my cousin who was also a dialysis patient because this is a hereditary thing. It runs in our family, obviously from my grandmother's aunt who died from this, right? And she says, I do dialysis at home. You might be interested in that. And I have this African woman from Belize who is my nephrologist and she runs the program and she is awesome. She gave me the phone number. I called her up and that woman and I, are still friends to this day, even though she's retired. It was the best decision that I could have made. And I came to her pregnant and she goes, oh my God. Okay. So this is what we're going to do. I want you to go and see this particular OB doctor and I'm going to call her. I'm going to tell her what's up with you. And she and I are going to work together and we're going to make this baby come. And that's what they did. They met, they've had conversations, I guess, over the phone or whatever regularly about what would be the next best step every step of the way. This is happening. That is happening. Let's do this. Let's do that. And they made it possible, even to the point that my blood pressure medicine was very expensive because it was what worked for me and the baby. And I said, I can't even afford this anymore. My husband and I, we can't afford it. She said, well, you have, you're very high risk. I can actually put you in the hospital and have you in here on bed rest until you deliver. And then if we do that, your medicine will be covered. It'll be paid for. And that may be the best route. We can watch you have you on bed rest. And that happened. I was in the hospital for about eight weeks and she took me off bed rest when I was 34 weeks pregnant 
And I was off bed rest for about four or five days. And then my baby came, I was 35 weeks. So she was a few days away from being considered full term. She was breathing when she was born because I was at risk. So they gave me shots to prepare for that. She was four pounds and one ounce. She didn't stay in the hospital. She wasn't in NICU. She came home with me when I came home. And August 23rd of this year, she'll be 19. Wow. She's healthy. She's doing well. She's in college. She's going to be a sophomore in August. I didn't listen to that doctor, and I'm so glad. But the plot thickens. There's more? There's more. There's more. There's more. Um, Those two women did a wonderful job making my baby come. And I realized today that the first doctor when I was pregnant could have done the same things that they did. And my son could have been born. But um, when my daughter was about three months old, I go to my nephrologist and I say, I have something to tell you. And she was almost like a mother figure at that time because we had gotten really close, right? We saw each other regularly. I did dialysis six days a week in order for the baby to make it, you know, I had to do my part. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I have something to tell you. And I don't know how you're going to respond. I'm almost scared to tell you this. Like, I feel like a little child. She said, just tell me. I said, I'm pregnant again. Wow. And she said, <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was pregnant again. My baby was three months old and I was pregnant again. My husband was going to the appointments with me. So, you know, she chastised him and she chastised <laughs> me. <laughs> and after she got done doing that, she said, okay, so we know what we have to do now because we've been down this road. It's time to get to work. And um, my second daughter was born a little early though this time. They did everything that they did last time, but she actually came a little early. I was 28 weeks when she came and I, had, I was in the hospital on bed rest earlier that time. I was on bed rest a lot earlier because it was a little more complicated. And um, after that, the doctor was like, okay, we have to give you some kind of um, (laughs) birth control. (laughs) We had to to do something with you because I couldn't take birth control pills because of the blood pressure. So they were like, either your husband gets a vasectomy or we tie your tubes. My um, nephrologist said, tie your tubes, tie them right away. And then um, OB doctor said she was leery about tying my tube. And the kidney doctor says, but Dialysis patients have surgery all the time. Tie her tubes. So they decided to give me a um, IUD. They were like, we're not going to keep going through this with you. We've been blessed to have two, but this is it. We cannot keep going through this with you. But I was still fertile. It wasn't like what the books were telling the doctors with dialysis patients. It was different for me. I was still able to have children. And so that second one is... 17, just graduated high school, and she'll be 18 in September, and she's headed off to college. So she's doing well. She was a preemie. So we did have some difficulties in the beginning for the first two years, but I did everything that I was supposed to do in both pregnancies. By this time, I was doing the home hemo, and I was doing seven days where I did dialysis every single day for that um, second baby, for the second girl to make it here. And it was tough. Um, but obviously it happened. So I wasn't going to do anything, but try my best to make sure the child came here. And so now I have these two beautiful miracle babies. In addition to my son, who I had first, who I loved as well. But those two girls, they were miracle babies. They were born in a situation that they, most people thought they couldn't be born. And they were here. So 
my fight is because of them, right? I had to fight now because my mom died when I was eight. And I know what it feels like to not have a mother. So now I got to fight because I got three of them and I got to fight. And so, you know, I put my gloves on and I was ready to fight. I was ready to do whatever I needed to do. And this doctor and I, we had a great rapport. We had built a great relationship and I listened to her and I did what she told me to do. And I did the home hemo for 16 years. She retired when I was at about my 15th year. And um, in the, the 16th year, I had a stroke because of the high blood pressure. It was just uncontrollable. And they doctors were trying to control it. They had me on three different medicines and I could, they, it just couldn't, it wouldn't, it wasn't being controlled well at that time. And I had a stroke and um, I was still fighting. I was still fighting. And if you look at me, I don't look like a person who had a stroke. No, you don't. Yeah, but I did, you know, and I was at the hospital when it happened. I was, I knew something was wrong and I went to the emergency room and it started happening while I was in the emergency room. So I was seen within that first hour. We're told that you need to be seen within the first hour of a stroke. And I was there when it happened. So that was such a blessing um, for me. And when I came out, I didn't know, you know, it's a brain injury. So I didn't know a lot of things. And my memory was just completely shot. I didn't even remember a couple of the kids' names. So it was a lot of things. And that was another fight. It was another fight, you know, to try to get myself back to where I'm at. And I went to therapy. I went to therapy like clockwork. I was doing everything I needed to do. And so, you know, in the midst of this story, um, after the second baby was three and eligible to go to daycare, I went back to school and I got my master's degree. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So I got my degree and my Honors were in the International Sociological Association, and I was so extremely happy about that ac- accomplishment. And so incredible. Yeah. Well, it was a battle. It was a battle, but it was one that I was willing to take because I thought about the children and I said, um, this thing runs in our family. And it's a great possibility that maybe it might happen to them or something else might happen to them. Life is going to hit them. And if I set an example that no matter what has happened to me, I'm still going to keep going after the particular goals that I had. Hopefully, they'll see that. And when things get rough for them, they'll say, well, I remember mom. She did this and she did that in spite of. And if she could do it, I can do it too. So that was kind of my drive is to try to just set a good example for them. And also... It was because I realized, especially as I started doing it, that I felt more alive when I was busy. Being in school, being around other people, I didn't necessarily share my medical information with the students in school and everything. But being around other people that were living normal lives made me feel a little normal as well. And that's what I was missing. I was missing the the sense of normalcy started feeling that uh, uh, I didn't matter as much and that I would never be able to do a lot of things that I had thought about as a teenager and that this is all I'm going to be capable of. And all of those negative thoughts were kind of dwelling in my mind. 
But when I was able to go back to school and start feeling alive again, those thoughts did not come back up. And I started realizing then if I stay busy and I stay involved and I do things that I enjoy, it will help me mentally with all that I'm going through because I can't change anything about this disease, but I can change how I live with it and I can change how I feel about it. Yeah. And and so, you know, that is pretty much it in a nutshell as far as how I got to where I'm at today. Today I work. I'm a teacher. I, you know, I'm a professor at a local community college and I absolutely love it. And the thing that I really like about being a professor is that we have 16 weeks of class and then we have a long break. We have our winter break and the winter break is about five or six weeks. And then we have another 16 weeks of class for spring. We have one week in the middle of that for spring break. And then we have summer. So for a person like me who definitely has a chronic illness, I'm not forgetting that I have a chronic illness. About the time that I get tired of working is when we have a nice break. So this type of profession works well for me and my illness. And what I realized too, when I work with people, I talk to other people who are newly diagnosed and they like want advice and things. They look at me as somebody who's been dealing with it for a long time. And maybe I can offer some advice. If they're interested in working, I remind them, you know, try to find something that you enjoy, but that works well with your disease. You can't forget that you have this disease and it's a huge part of our lives. So we have Mm -hmm. to make sure that whatever we do, it fits in there and it fits well. And for me, this one works really well. I like people. So being able to teach, I teach adults. I get to meet new people regularly. And I like having something to do with myself. I like having something to do with myself. I like being able to get out of the house and feel important. I love when my students say, I loved your class, Professor Starks. And I mentor students at work. And I love when I know because they're telling me that I'm helping make a difference for them. I get fulfillment out of that. So I still have the disease. I'm still doing dialysis. I did get a transplant once um, before I went back to work after I had the stroke. I was given an opportunity to have a transplant, but it didn't last long. It only lasted me three months. The nephrotic syndrome or the disease of, of, uh, attacked the new kidney. And so after three months, we had to have the kidney taken out. So it was a short period of time that I was dialysis free out of this entire, what, 20 years now. I had those little three months and I enjoyed those three months. I enjoyed it. I I wish that the transplant had lasted, but it didn't. And I went back to the familiar dialysis because I knew dialysis. I understood how to live with dialysis. And so that's what I do now. I still do my dialysis. I'm in a different type of home dialysis program. Now I do next stage and I can travel with this one, which is pretty cool. And my children are like, you know, going to college. My son graduated from college already. Now my two daughters are there. I did it. (laughs) I got all three of my kids through high school and into college and the odds were against any of that happening. Yes. (laughs) The odds were against that, but it happened and they're happy. They know a lot about my disease and my advocacy really is so that they have every bit of information that they could possibly have about this disease and they can share it with their children and they can share with their grandchildren. Like nobody else in my family needs to be diagnosed with kidney disease and not have ever been aware of it until they get the diagnosis. 
This runs in our family and we all need to know about it. And so I made that change. I started making sure that I got out. I did the advocacy. I take my kids with me. I have them be involved in everything that I do related to my advocacy. So they'll know. They'll know. And they know that they're at risk. They know that they need to be checked regularly. Their kids will know because they'll tell their kids and they'll tell their grandkids and everybody will always know. And hopefully they look back. My great, great grandma was Monica Starks. And she talked about this and she talked about that. And, you know, and we know more today because of her, because she wasn't afraid to share her story. And wait, I better stop and not say that because I was afraid to tell my story in the beginning. (laughs) I didn't want people to know because I don't look like I'm sick. It's an invisible illness. And so I didn't want to share that with people. And it was because of my husband. He shared it with everybody. I said, why are you telling everybody my business? <laughs> he said, but people need to know that you're looking, look how good you look in spite of all of this. People need to know that you've been blessed and people need to hear it. You don't have to hide it. And after so long of him insisting on telling it, no matter how much I asked him not to, I said, well, if anybody's going to tell my story, I guess I'll be the one to tell it. And I realized when I was out in the community telling my story, it helped people. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes they don't listen to the doctor because they see the doctor as just being a doctor. And well, he doesn't know or she doesn't know. But I'm telling you what I know, my personal experiences. And I'm telling you why, if you may be at risk, you need to really try to do what you can not to get this disease. Because there are a lot of people that we both know have gotten the disease and they didn't have to get it. You know, and they wish they had known a little bit more. So, you know, I just try to share what I can to be helpful. Just like coming here on this podcast, I'm sharing my story and laying out a lot of stuff just so that maybe somebody hears it and it helps them and inspires them. Helps them think like, okay, well. I have to say that hearing what you have been through, I mean, your journey is so incredible. Your pregnancies, everything that you went through, having that Poor treatment and attitude of that doctor, everything that you've experienced on top of that, then going on to have a stroke on top of that, managing to study and get a master's degree and work and all the things that, wow, not just kidney warrior, superwoman, kidney warrior, <laughs> like, like, honestly, I'm just sitting here, just blown away by your strength, by Everything that you've managed to achieve in the face of so many odds against you, it really just, I'm speechless. I'm genuinely (laughs) totally taken aback because there's an expression about oppression Olympics. I mean, pain is relative. People's situations are what they are and everybody has got their struggle. But there are some stories that really put things into perspective and to hear that you have been through all of that and yet you're sitting here today with such a positive mindset and kind enough to share what you've been through with the listeners, with myself, so that we can actually draw strength and inspiration. Honestly, I I take my hat off to you. I commend you because you you. truly, truly are a warrior. Super warrior. I'm going to add super (laughs) warrior on there. Like That is just... So, I mean, clearly you've learned so much that you can share with others. And so really, I would like to ask you that question. What advice 
would you give to somebody who has just been diagnosed with kidney disease? And actually, as somebody who has had two miracle pregnancies, and I can relate to that myself, my pregnancies were very, very difficult. What advice would you give to somebody who they're a kidney patient or maybe they're planning to have children or they've just found out that they're pregnant? What advice would you share with them to give them that hope through their pregnancy? Well, I would say make sure that you're working with the right people. Your nephrologist and your OB doctor, they really need to work together. At least in my experience, when I had two people that were really willing to work together, it worked. And when I had two people that didn't work together, it didn't work. And I would suggest that, you know, talk to the doctor about your wanting to get pregnant and you can get a vibe from how they react to you just saying that you want to get pregnant. And if that's not what you're hoping for, their response is not what you're hoping for. In most cases, you can switch. You can search. And I don't know, you know, I'm in America, so we do have options. And I don't know what country other people may be in and how things work there. I can only speak for here in America. You can switch up doctors. You can go out shopping, (laughs) go out shopping for a doctor that is willing to try with you and work with you and help you get to that point. That doesn't mean that it's going to actually happen. You know, we can't speak for that. But if you have somebody that's going to work with you and help you, that would be a huge start and a huge help. So that would be my first thing. Just try to make sure that you're looking for and talking with the people that will definitely be in your corner to support you wanting to do this. That's really good advice. Thank you. You're welcome. What myths about kidney disease would you like to debunk? But I think, to be honest, you've blown so many myths out of the window just with your story. Well, let's see. I guess the fact that dialysis patients can't get pregnant, that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. I think that in most cases, they don't normally get pregnant. But to say that they can't, it's just not true. They can. And they have. I have. So that's one myth that probably should be debunked. Um, There's a lot of things that were supposed to happen to me that haven't happened. Like dialysis patients don't ovulate and they stop having their menstruals every month. But guess what? I have not (laughs) stopped, you know, and I'm 49 (laughs) years old. (laughs) I'm done. I don't need to. I don't want to have any more kids. (laughs) I feel like I'm done with that part of my life and I could definitely end it if you know, the powers that be will be okay with it, but um, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen when it happens. So that's a, a myth that this doesn't happen for dialysis patients because for some of them, for some of us, it, it does happen. We do have menstruals still. And what other, oh, and that you can't find relationships. I actually, on my husband, once I was already diagnosed and not necessarily doing well, And you can find somebody that will be willing to support you in spite of your illness. Not that every person will, not every woman and every man can handle because it's a lot to deal with, but there are some people out here who will. So that's a 
<laughs> that you have to deal with alone and you can't find a mate and you can't get married. And uh, I'm not sure what else, what other um, myths. Those are the ones I could think of right off the top. Thank you. You're welcome. So do you have a final word of encouragement for the listeners? This is not a death sentence. It's not necessarily anything that we would want to happen to us as true. But when it's happened, it's happened. It's irreversible, but it's not a death sentence. And we can still live boldly with uh, chronic kidney disease. We can still accomplish our dreams and our goals. You can have other people that are dealing with this too, that you can talk to, support groups. Clubhouse has so many different rooms that you can go into with people who are talking about kidney disease and you can share and learn from social media, Facebook. Um, There are lots of places where there are plenty of people from all over the world that are dealing with the same thing that you're dealing with. So reach out to them because it's different when you're talking to other people who can relate than it is with people who can just have empathy for you. And it's helpful. And as you move along your journey with chronic kidney disease, you can help other people too at some point who are newly diagnosed and coming in. So I say, try to connect with like people who are also dealing, I wanted to say like-minded, but it's not necessarily like-minded, but people who are dealing with it just like you and we can help and support each other. It makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Don't give up. I guess my last bit of support is don't give up on your dreams. At least try. You may have to do it differently than you planned or differently than another person is doing it, but you can at least still try to do some things and it'll help you, definitely help you feel a little bit better about all of the other things that you're dealing with, things that haven't gone right. Sometimes just living your dreams or trying to get close to your dreams will help you feel better. Thank you. So how do the listeners get in contact with you online? Okay, well, I'm, I'm on Instagram and I'm at Professor Starks on Instagram. I'm on Facebook with just my name, Monica Starks. I have a website, which is also my name, and it's www.monicaastarks.com. And it's important that you put Monica A, have to have that middle initial in there. And well, I do have LinkedIn. Don't use it as much. I'm going to probably start trying to use it a little bit more. And on LinkedIn, I'm also Monica Starks. So yeah, those are ways you can reach out to me. And you can email me also if you're interested in emailing me, which you could get the email address from my website, or I can just give it to you. It's a M-O-N-I-9803 at yahoo.com. Again, that's M-O-N-I-9803 at yahoo.com. Thank you. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your amazing amazing story i really am blown away by hearing your story and it really wow you're just amazing that's all i have to say but thank you so much for joining me you are so welcome i enjoy being here and i love doing whatever i can to help other people so thanks for having me on if you were affected by any of the issues discussed in this week's podcast for further support Contact San Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Charity on 0808 164 333.
too. And email kidneycareuk on info at kidneycareuk.org or telephone 01420-541-424. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. Until next time, take care and choose to live.